Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for June 19th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Well, last month, everybody's favorite frenemy, Google, treated the technology press and the rest of us to a particularly eye-popping edition of its annual conference, Google I.O., featuring a more refined version of its wearable computing project, Google Glass, new voice-activated search, and a blizzard of other announcements. And as Tim O'Reilly reminded attendees at this month's SSP annual meeting, Google has also been busy with other ventures, such as making a self-driving car. We've come a long way in a few short years, it seems, from that no-frills search bar that still lies at the heart of Google's business. David Smith, Scholarly Kitchen chef and head of innovation with Cabby's PlantWise Initiative, is on the line to talk about what's next from the Colossus of Mountain View. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I guess first, David, uh, the most important question, have you tried Google Glass yet? Alas, no. Google hasn't actually released any glass prototypes to anybody outside of the United States, as far as I know. I do know somebody who is a winner in the Get Glass competition. (laughs) And uh, in fact, more or less as we speak, I believe, is heading down to Mountain View to be fitted out with the latest prototype. So I'm hoping to to be in touch with that person and find out a lot more about their experience. Get a little Um, first-hand intelligence at that point, huh? Absolutely. I have to say, if I had the opportunity, I would love to, although I suspect with the UK's uh, treatment of Google recently over their tax arrangements, it might be that we're at the end of the queue, but we'll never know. (laughs) Well, it's been interesting to watch some of the press reaction to Glass uh, in the wake of the the recent Google I.O. conference. I mean, now that Glass seems to be getting closer, at least, to something that's an actual product, I I have noticed that a few people have have looked at this as something potentially revolutionary, but I've been surprised by the amount of coverage that is just focused on how weird the things look and whether anyone will actually wear them. Uh, To me, some of what I've been hearing kind of reminds me of some of the early dismissals of the iPad, and I'm wondering if in five years we're going to be talking about glass the way we talk about the iPhone today as something really, you know, transformative. Yes, I, I think there's a few things to sort of try and unpack there, actually. So, um, so let's deal with, with perhaps the, the most trivial one, which is, I guess, the fashion thing. To me, that's a marketing problem, and it's solvable. And I was thinking about this because I was thinking about um, you can get these uh, headphones now, Beats Audio by right. Dr. Dre, which are these absolutely enormous headphones. <laughs> now, I've always really liked large headphones because I like my music. But for a very, very long time, they have not been anything that you would call fashionable. Certainly when the iPod came out, you know, we had those little white earbuds that sounded absolutely terrible, but everybody thought they were cool, so that's what people used. And then all of a sudden, some branding, and now everybody on the streets is walking around with these absolutely enormous ear cans strapped to their heads, and (laughs) and I certainly feel that I stick out a lot less. So I, I think in that point of view, you know, this is solvable. You find some celebrities, you pay them the appropriate amount of money, and uh, you hope that that marketing technique works, because it certainly did for headphones. I think then there's the slightly bigger question, which is, I suppose, phrased by uh, some of the, the commentary I've seen, which is, is glass the equivalent of the Segway? Mm-hmm. And I've seen that a few times. I have to say, I kind of think it's a bit of a manufactured debate. But I think at its root, it's about whether Google Glass fulfills, you know, a necessary condition or just a sufficient condition. The Segway did offer an alternative to other transport options, 
uh, but it didn't really do anything to render those options less attractive or viable. It was also very expensive, and I think it had some problems, uh, certainly initially when it was launched. So whilst it was an interesting idea um, and has been used in verticals, I see police officers using it and I certainly have seen it used in theme parks and places like that. Yes, and in supposedly walking tours of cities like Washington, D.C. Exactly, see. yeah. So it's kind of narrow verticals. But I think glass, or at least the idea of wearable ambient computing devices, solves all sorts of useful issues, which puts it squarely into the category of things that are, are solutions for necessary conditions. Hmm. I'm struck by... You know, we don't use our mobile phones. Frankly, they're not mobile phones, right? They're mobile computing devices mm -hmm. that you just happen to be able to make calls on. We use them for anything else, it seems, other than making uh, a phone call. So putting something in the field of view of a user as a heads-up display, I think that is potentially very useful. And I say, if you solve the fashion problem, you could certainly see that uh, taking hold. I, I also think glass benefits from Moore's Law. So you're going to get massively better right, performance yeah. with each iteration, which is not something that ever happened to, to the Segway. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, the, the answers will be, well, what can you do with it? Right now, what we're seeing are prototypes. And in fact, in, in, in this release of, of the devices, I think there's 8,000 of them going out to various people. As much as anything, it's the idea of getting this into hands of people to find out what it is they want to do with it, mm. to give the developer base something to build applications for to see what works and what doesn't. But to me, it's, it's, you know, it's a personalized, it's a massively context-aware, it's a cloud-enabled ambient computing device designed to help you get answers to things. You know, where's the thing? How, I, how do I get there from here? What's that building or painting? You can't do people yet, um, but I suspect that might not be too far around the corner. Mm -hmm. How can I share this experience with somebody else? Can I multitask more effectively or safely than I can right now? And then I think there's another one, actually, that, that maybe is not yet dropped into general thought, which is to what extent can it actually augment human abilities? Mm -hmm. Now, it has a camera on it, and at the moment the camera is being shown so you could take pictures and do all the rest of it. But one of the things about little cameras that you get on uh, webcams or whatever is that actually they'll see into the infrared. Mm -hmm. What actually happens at this day and age is that most of that information is actually filtered out because it's not much use to us. But imagine you're walking down a street at night, mm. right? Your own personal pair of night vision goggles, I guess. Exactly. It can alert things to you that you can't see with your own eyes. And mm -hmm. I think that might be an incredibly useful thing. And I could certainly see some people doing some things in that area. I can also see things like... It should be able to work out, frankly, whether you're falling asleep. So if it knows you're in a car because you're driving a certain number of miles per hour, which it will get from the GPS information, and you start to have all the signs of nodding off, okay, it could drop an alert to you right into your field of view to mm -hmm. say, hey, get off the road, go and take a rest. There's all kinds of possibilities there. Yeah, well, I wonder, though, about the impact of all of this on scholarly publishers. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like some amazing capabilities, and certainly the market for scholarly communications is going to find a use for these things. These days in publishing, it's, it's all about adding value by, you know, the talk is all about adding value by integrating content and services into user workflows. But these are, you know, there are going to be workflows here that we can't even imagine. And in reality, many publishers still seem to be trying to figure out what to do about smartphones, let alone something as revolutionary as Google Glass. Indeed. This is not just about Glass. 
but actually a whole bunch of other things that Google's up to that, that are or will uh, impact us. Let's keep it to devices for a moment. Right, so what is Glass? It's, it's a two-way information transmission system. I think in some respects it might actually be easier to develop applications for Glass because it's either going to be a very lean information transmission system uh, or actually it'll be so sophisticated you won't worry about the limitations of the hmm, device, which is, which is something we actually have with, with mobile phones. You know, We've had to solve some very basic things in mobile, basically formatting issues, um, and with a multitude of device specs, and, and that has been a right pain to deal with, You know, different operating right. systems, different screen sizes, all the rest of it. And, and then we've had to sit down and think about what might be genuinely useful to a user. So what helps the time pool researcher or student who is staring at a two-and-a-half-inch by four-inch glass rectangle? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> one of our problems, I think one of our problems is the fact that it's not at all easy to transit across devices seamlessly in the scholarly publishing world, and I think that's a real issue. You know, we don't have the equivalent of Amazon's WhisperSync for users of our content in all their different information silos. You know, with WhisperSync, you can pick up your Kindle, you can use it on the desktop, you can use it on your mobile phone, you can use it on your Kindle or your iPad, and it just knows where you've been, and it's an incredibly seamless experience mm-hmm. to get to your material. That's very, very hard for us to do, and I think there's some fundamental issues here that if we solved those, they would actually make our lives easier for sorting out mobile applications, regardless of whether it's a phone or glass or, or anything else. I think right now we're limited to some quite specific use cases. But I was, I was actually thinking of some glass examples. So I could think of uh, applications in the medical field. So drug form, formularies and, and other information lookups. I um, I recall from my days as, a, as an editor of a, a critical care journal that, that medics love the PDA. Mm-hmm. Because if you whipped out one of those at a consultation with a patient and their worried relatives, you look to be like a really top-notch doctor. <laughs> Whereas if you pulled out your well-thumbed book of really bad drug combinations that I don't want to give to my patients, they tended to get alarmed. Hmm. And I, I actually had that exact conversation with the doctor when they were saying, we love this stuff because we can get these applications. It was on the good old-fashioned palm pilot back in the day. And it helps us look authoritative whilst giving us the information we need at the exact moment that we need it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's all kinds of options there for glass in the medical context, you know, text recognition tools, all kinds of bits and pieces. I think some other things that are going to be quite interesting will be whether you can actually read an article and have Google Glass assist you in taking notes, whether it's voice notes or using your eyes to highlight sections of text it's probably worth pointing out here that uh, if you use an application called Google Goggles, which is free and is available on any Android mobile phone, I think you can actually get it on the Apple operating system as well. If you point it at a business card, it will automatically recognize that that's a business card and will populate your contacts database for Mm -hmm. you. So there's some really neat stuff happening out there, and I could see some very helpful tools that one could develop for academics. You know, could you do a specialized dictionary, because we all publish specialized dictionaries, that could be keyed up to provide expert certified definitions to the words you're reading, whether you're reading it on a screen or on paper. There's some interesting uh, possibilities there. Uh, Laboratory methods. Again, back in the day when I used to be a lab bench scientist, you know, we would take our hallowed molecular biology protocols out 
uh, we first thing we would do would be photocopy it because obviously you don't want that version to get covered in acid or whatever it is. And then you'd pin the photocopy up somewhere in the lab so you could look at it while you were doing your work. Well, there's a context-aware piece of information that could be very useful mm. to you. So I think there's some practical things there. And I think this all surrounds around getting to grip with context and how as scholarly publishers we could deliver appropriate contextual information to our, our users. So as you noted, uh, Glass was hardly the only thing that Google's been up to and far from the only uh, announcements at, uh, at Google I.O. this year. There was a lot of other stuff, too, that, again, kind of bears on this issue of context and of, in some ways, in pulling just multiple different services and and, and things together. Uh, it looks like we're going to be talking to our computers a lot more than we used to if, if Google has its way. Absolutely. And actually, I'm going to attempt here to uh, be very, very brave and do a demonstration. Let's see if <laughs> this works. Things to do in Oxfordshire. Here are popular attractions in Oxford. Well, that well, that sounds that sounds uh, sounds like it worked. <laughs> it, it certainly did. What it's thrown up for me is a map of Oxford and Oxford points of interest, such as the Bodleian Library and the O2 Academy and the Pitt Rivers Museum, and so on and so forth. And I just spoke to my computer. Uh, this actually does my head in when I think about it because this is Star Trek um, <laughs> delivered right here, right now. Again, it's context. It's, it's Google's ability to process information. That's not happening on my iPad. That's happening in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So my, my voice is being compressed and altered so that it could be sent to Google. Google servers somewhere are churning away and understanding that, uh, that uh, speech and then delivering results back to me all in, what was it, a couple of seconds, something mm. like that. I mean, it's incredibly fast. <laughs> incredibly fast. And I think one of the interesting things there is is the fact that we're starting to really see the impact of the cloud. You don't need the iPad or your phone or whatever it is to be the all-powerful device here. Actually, all it needs to be able to do is to get that information to a set of servers somewhere that could do the really hard work. Hmm. And I think that's a very, very transformative thing. But again, it comes back to the device being ambient, to it being aware of you, to being in context, you know, just turning around saying, I need to have the answer to this question right now. And it starts to show something else that I think scholarly publishers, well, all publishers actually, but scholarly publishers certainly need to pay attention to, which is up until now, Google has been a broker. You went through Google to get to our stuff. Well, here, I'm looking at something that's entirely contained within Google World, Mm. okay? It's pulling pictures back, it's pulling links, and actually does do some search results and so on and so forth. But the raw stuff of what would you like to do in Oxford is right there for me right now. Oh, the Bodleian Library, that looks interesting. How do I get there? Boom, click the link, and it will tell you how to get there from where you are. Suddenly, Google is actually being the destination. Hmm. And I think that that has some absolutely massive implications for us as publishers because we've always been destinations up until now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to believe how much Google has changed and how ubiquitous it's gotten, as you said, and 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 how now it's turning into a destination in itself. I remember, you know, early on in in Google's history, there was a lot of talk about how you had to have a Google strategy, but that was all about you know search engine optimization and keeping out of trouble with respect to Google's rules. Now we're talking about Google Glass. We're talking about you know. Google as a destination. 
um, things that could potentially really change the user experience and and the value proposition of content providers. What does a a publisher's Google strategy need to look like now in 2013? I think uh, the first point is one probably needs to have a Google strategy. Okay, one needs to put that front and center and and be considering. You know, Google is the giant that is defining what it means to be a purveyor of information in the early part of the 21st century. And that's something that we've always had a role in, and so we need to consider that very, very carefully. One of the big changes that's happened with Google, and it happened last year, actually, was uh, up until 2012, Google had always been this idea of... Um, It was a very clever search system, but in a sense, it was a very dumb search system. It worked on correlations and a very big database. How well does something match to the incoming query from the user? And then last year, they did a big change, and that change is really starting to roll out now when they introduced something called Knowledge Graph, which is absolutely massive. This is semantics. This is linked data. In fact, if you're wondering what linked data is all about, Go and look. Go and do some searches like the things that I just demoed, okay, and have a look at what Google shows you because that shows you the power of linked data. The sense that Google is attempting to understand properly what it is the user is asking for and what their particular needs are. Hmm. And, of course, to finesse that in a very personal experience. You know, my experience is not the same as your experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something to get to grips with. The beauty of this is that actually... You know, what are we as publishers? Well, actually, together with our constituents, with our customers, with our users, with our researchers, we actually have specialized knowledge domain experience. If you are a publisher of a collection of journals in the medical arena or the environmental science arena or the geological arena, or you're working with your societies, these are places where domain experience has coalesced around a group of like-minded individuals. So I I see no reason, actually, why we can't look at something that Google's done on a global scale, like Knowledge Graph, and say, well, hang on. We could do the same kind of thing in our particular areas. Now, I think that's going to be transformative if we choose to do it. I suspect for a lot of us, we're going to have to have some conversations about, you know, who do we partner with and Mm -hmm. how do we make these things work in the round? Okay, but I do think there's a fantastic opportunity here for publishers. You know, we are the ones that have put together these hard-to-assemble, expensive-to-produce in terms of time and expertise and all the rest of it, and curation and editorial and all of the things that we do. We've put these great knowledge repositories together, and it's the time, I think, to start making those things really work. I think Google has shown a view of where we might be able to go, and I think it's up to us to now start to drop that stuff into our 2020 visions because it's vitally important that we do. Uh, David Smith, very interesting. Thanks very much for dropping in. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for June 19th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, 
Bon Appetit.